It's good to see all of you this morning in the pouring rain, listening to the weather a little bit, and they advised you to stay home today, but I'm thankful that you didn't take their advice. Turning your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that the greatest gift of all eternity is the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time that we celebrate his birth, his coming into the world to carry out one singular purpose, and that is to go to the cross of Calvary and die for our sins to make it possible for us to have life. We thank you for that gift this morning. We pray that you would help us to see something of it today as we study your word together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the passages that deal with the birth of the Lord Jesus, the one that seems to always come to mind above all the others is this one in, in Luke's gospel. There is so much detail here. Luke was a very accomplished man. He was not only a physician, but he was also a chronologist. He was a man who I believe was interested in time and dates. And the Spirit of God, I believe, gave him that gift And he used it to speak through this man, to give us dates and times and details and seasons in the life of our Lord. And we get an idea of just how the Lord used this man. We get an idea of just how the the depth of his relationship with the Lord in the opening verses of his book here. In chapter 1 and verse 3, he says that he had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Think about that. God did not disagree with that, by the way, because it's in the book. And that perfect understanding, the reason that God did not disagree with it, is because that perfect understanding came from him. From the Spirit of God Himself. And so we can rely with complete and total confidence that extends to our very souls on the times and the history that Luke gives us. For example, turn over a page to Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of the Lord, the word of God, came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. We've mentioned before, but it's worth mentioning again 
the observation of Sir Robert Anderson in his book, Becoming Prince. And his observation concerning these verses is that there is not in the whole of Scripture a more definite chronological statement than these words here in Luke chapter 3. And here, and in chapter 2, with the names of the people and the positions that they were in at the time, they help us to be able to know something of the times and the seasons of the birth of the Lord Jesus. Robert, Sir Robert Anderson points out that the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar reckoned from the beginning of his reign was August the 19th, 28 A.D. 28 A.D. I want to emphasize that. Because at this Christmas season, we need to be reminded of the command of God to stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where is the good way. And the old paths and the good way is the abbreviations A.D. and B.C. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, Latin, which means in the year of our Lord. B.C. means before Christ. And those designations give our Lord the place that he deserves as the divider of all time. His coming into the world divides time into before his coming and since his coming. And it recognizes that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh into the world, is the most important event in all history. It puts him in the very midst, in the very center, in the very preeminent place of history. That's why the devil came up with another designation. You probably see it. BCE is one of them, which means before the common era. And CE, which means the common era. The common era being year one. And what that does is it removes the birth of the Lord Jesus as the dividing point of history. Because, I found this on a, a, a website, I thought it was very interesting. This is their explanation of changing it. Because A.D. and B.C. have religious connotations. Oh, the shame of that. And so the educational establishment, they have replaced Jesus Christ with secular humanistic designations because they do not believe that history has anything to do with the creator God and his coming into the world. And yet history, as Vance Habner said, and I love that guy, history is his story. That's what it's all about. It's about him. And here, the educational establishment in this country, no surprise to us, has removed that. Folks, how we measure and designate time is critically important. It's part of our stand for the Lord. And so we ought to obey God rather than men and stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where is the good way and walk therein. 
Because God says that's where you'll find rest for your souls. Now look back at Luke chapter 2. And in verse 2, we have more chronological information provided by the Spirit of God through Luke. He tells us that Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Historians have found, uh, much to the chagrin of the the skeptics and the critics, uh, that Cyrenius held that position twice. His first term in that office began in the latter part of 4 B.C. That's when this taxing was first made. And so that is when Mary and Joseph were making their way to Bethlehem. That would mean that the birth of the Lord Jesus was in the fall of 4 B.C. Why the fall? Why the fall? How do we know that? Well, I'll give you a thought. Because in the fall, there is a feast of the Lord. It's called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was when the high priest offered sacrifices for his sins and for the sins of the people. And that day of atonement, which was in the fall of the year, that day of atonement pictured the time when the high priest of all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, would offer himself as the one sacrifice for sins forever. By the shedding of his own blood. The high priest there in the Old Testament was shedding the blood of bulls and goats. But the the blood of bulls and goats can never atone. They can never take away sin. And so the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, went to the cross of Calvary. And he offered the one sacrifice for sins forever. Didn't have to offer any atonement for his sins. He had no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. He was made sin for us. And he shed his blood there on the cross of Calvary. How like God would it be? How like God, the perfect chronologist, to have his son, the priest, the high priest, and the sacrifice. Think about that. To be born on that day, the Day of Atonement, in the fall of 4 B.C. Now that being the case, Dr. Henry Morris points out that the conception of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God would have taken place in late December of the preceding year. Let me ask you something this morning. What if it took place on the 25th of December of the year 5 B.C.? It wouldn't surprise me to find when we get to glory because I believe that all of these dates in the Bible, don't ask me to explain it, don't grab me back there in the the vestibule this morning and say, explain that. (laughs) I believe, though, and we'll see it when we get there, that the dates are going to line up just absolutely perfectly. But it wouldn't surprise me to find that that's exactly when Mary 
was with child by the Holy Spirit. And that would mean, if that's the case, that what we are celebrating on December 25th every year is the conception by the Holy Ghost in the womb of Mary, the conception of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back a page to Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. And the angel said unto her, the angel said unto Mary, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. The language in this 31st verse is worth thinking about. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. From the moment of conception, because that's where Gabriel's message, that's where his explanation to Mary begins. From that moment, Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to bring forth a son. From the moment of conception, the one who is life was made flesh. From the moment of conception, the word of God. I love the song we sang. Thank you for picking that song out, Brother Ben. Word of the Father. Now in flesh appearing. From the moment of conception, the word was made flesh. The Lord Jesus was not an embryo. He wasn't a mass of tissues. He was the son of God. We talked recently about the lie of the transgender movement. And it's supported by so many in the medical community. That sex is assigned... At birth. And therefore something that is arbitrarily assigned at birth can be changed. What a lie. But as we saw in that message from the word of God, it cannot be changed. Because it's determined by God at the moment of conception. And we see that demonstrated in the life of the blessed son of God. Paul tells us, In Philippians 2 and verse 7, that the Lord Jesus was made in the likeness of men. That took place at the moment of his conception by the Holy Ghost. And that's so important in this day of lies and deception because we're made in his image. Genesis 1.27, which has always been an important verse, but it's even more important in this day. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. He does that at the moment of conception. From the moment that you and I are created, from the moment that you and I are conceived in the womb, we're not an embryo, we're not a mass of tissues. We are human beings created in the image of God as either a male or a female as it seems good to him. As it seems good to him. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. And the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us this fundamental, this foundational truth. And wouldn't it be just like the Lord to have even the wrath of man to praise him every December 25th? When even those who are pro-abortion, pro-death, from President Biden all the way down through the, 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 the Democrat Party that support abortion at any time, right up to the moment of birth. 
thinking that they're celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus on that day when perhaps they're celebrating the conception of the life of the Son of God. The very crowd that doesn't believe that life begins at conception. Celebrating the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that began here in this world at his conception by the Holy Ghost in the womb of Mary. I find that to be what we might call holy irony. Holy irony. The wrath and the anger and the fury of those who hate God and who would have no doubt aborted him actually celebrating what they do not believe, that life begins at conception. Pastor Kelly wrote a book, I guess close to 40 years ago, or maybe a little over 40 years ago. It's just as relevant today as it was then. Amer uh, abortion, the American Holocaust. And he said this in that book. The full impact of the anti-Christian nature of abortion may be felt by taking a mental journey back in time. Using modern guidelines, the Department of Human Resources in Nazareth would most certainly have provided counseling to a girl named Mary. Her youth, her poverty, and her pregnancy out of wedlock would have made her the perfect candidate. The decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed would have provided the funds. The taxpayers, the politicians, and the humanist Gestapo would have combined in a socially acceptable effort to abort the Savior of the world. And yet here are those with that mindset, perhaps celebrating, not the birth of the Son of God that took place in the fall of 4 B.C., but rather possibly celebrating on December 25th the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just one reason that Luke's words in chapter 2 and 3 are so important. Because they help us to get into the neighborhood, to kind of get in our minds the time of the birth of the Lord. Now, someone might say, well, what about Luke chapter 3 and verse 23? Well, let's look at that verse for just a minute. Luke's telling us about the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And notice what we read in verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Now, if you start at August 19th, 28 AD, the 15th year of uh, Tiberius Caesar, and you go back 30 years, you come to the year 3 BC. And so that would seem to create a conflict between Luke 2 and verse 2, where we read about Cyrenius and the, the taxing, and verse 23 here, where we read about the beginning of the Lord's ministry. But there's a very important word in verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. That word about removes all of the conflict between these two verses. We've talked over the years several times how God obscures time here in the Bible. He gives us a tremendous amount of information so that we can 
trace time here in his word. For example, in Genesis chapter 5, we can trace time precisely from Adam to the year of the flood. The year of the flood from creation, 1656. We can trace that exactly. He gives us that kind of information. But other places, he leaves out little pieces of the puzzle. And he does that so that we cannot sit down and figure, and we could if he didn't do it. He does that so we cannot know the day and the hour of his return. He doesn't want us to know that. But we can take the information that he gives us and we can know the times and the seasons. And how much more important is that? If we knew the day and the hour, what would we do? We're procrastinators by nature. So what would we do? Well, We'd wait to live for the Lord maybe a month or so before he's, well, he's coming on this day, so i got to get serious all of a sudden. But by knowing the times and the seasons, then we know his return is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And we better be very careful about how we live. We better not delay living and serving the Lord. So this is one of those examples. But the other point that would place the birth of the Lord Jesus in 4 B.C. is there in Matthew's account. We aren't going to turn there, but it tells us that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. That's a reference to Herod the Great. He died in 4 B.C. If the Lord had been born in 3 B.C., he would have been born after the days of Herod the king. And so through Luke's words, we can fix the season of the Lord's birth. So let's go back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Luke tells us about a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus, another important point of history. And it's a, it's a point that relates to us today. Up until the time of Augustus, Rome had been a republic. But Caesar Augustus ended the Roman Republic that had existed for close to 500 years. He ended it when he became the emperor of Rome. And so as we've talked about before, the Lord Jesus was born into a world that was ruled by one man, a man who had the power to issue a decree that all the world should be taxed. And not only that, but the power to move people and cause them to go to their ancestral home, to the place where the state would be certain that they would be accounted for so that they could not escape paying the tax. Folks, that's total control. And that's how it was when the Lord Jesus came to earth the first time. And it's how it's going to be when he comes to earth the second time. It's worth noting that the Lord Jesus came the first time after the longest republic in history had come to an end. And the ending of that Roman Republic led to the Roman Empire. We're living in the final days here in America of the longest running constitutional republic in the history of the world. 
And when this constitutional republic that has been the home and the defender of liberty and freedom around the world is gone, it's interesting that what's going to emerge is the revived Roman Empire, just as it was in the days of the Lord's first coming to earth. It's going to be that way at his second coming. So I don't think there's any question that America is no longer a constitutional republic. What we're seeing in this country, and we have been seeing over a period of years, is the erosion of individual liberty, the centralization which is leading to the disintegration of our economy. What we've seen, the Romans were invaded by the barbarians, the countries around them. We're being invaded by the bar barbarians of secular humanism. And you realize just exactly how bad it is if you had an opportunity to listen to the testimony of the presidents of some of the leading universities in this country and their defense of anti-Semitism, their defense of Israel being wiped off the face of the earth. That's where we are. We've been invaded by the barbarians of secular humanism. And this nation is very near collapse. When that happens, the revived Roman Empire is going to emerge again with the Antichrist at its head. Before that happens, the Lord Jesus is going to come to the air. He's going to take his children out of this world. And we're looking forward to that. We're not looking for the revived Roman Empire. We're looking for the Savior. But it's interesting how these things line up. It's into those conditions that the Lord Jesus will come to the earth the second time. The, the conditions that existed at his first coming, the conditions that existed at his second coming, I think are just unmistakable to see. And these things are brought before our minds by the details that Luke gives us here. But there's some other details that Luke gives that we want to notice. I'm not going to have time to notice them all this morning. But look at verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's interesting, and Kent talked about this in a message many years ago, and I'd never thought about it before. It's interesting to notice that the arrival of the shepherd was made known to these shepherds. Look back quickly to Genesis chapter 49, if you will. You thought you were going to escape Genesis 49 this morning. But we're not. Genesis chapter 49. We've been spending time in, in our Sunday morning messages looking at, at Israel's final words to his sons. 
And we haven't gotten to Joseph yet, but in his final words to him, he says something very interesting. Look at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a whale whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Now notice the next words here. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, if you think about Joseph's history in Egypt, how the Lord sent him there, in his own testimony to his brethren, that they had meant what they did to him for evil, the Lord had meant it for good to, to save their lives and many lives. We, we can see how he had been sent by the mighty God of Jacob as a shepherd, if you will, to feed and care for Jacob's family. And, and he was sent there as a stone to uphold and support this fledgling little nation of Israel. But we've come here because Jacob's words go far beyond any kind of reference to Joseph. His words here are a prophecy. They're a prophecy of the shepherd of Israel, the one who is going to come. This is the first time in the word of God that the mighty God of Jacob is called the shepherd. The shepherd. It's the second time that we find the word shepherd in the Bible. The first time is back just a couple of pages in, in Genesis chapter 46 and verse 34, if you want to look at it. In Genesis 46 and verse 34 Joseph tells his brethren, and it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, What is your occupation? That ye shall say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers. That ye may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Egypt is a picture of the world here in the word of God. And so the Egyptians are a picture to us of the people of this world, you and me. And here in these words is the attitude of the people of Egypt, the attitude of the people of this world, our attitude by nature toward the shepherd. Every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. And that includes the mighty God. The shepherd of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in this first mention of the word shepherd, we find the condition and the attitude of heart of the people of Egypt, of the people of this world. The mighty God, the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ is an abomination to the people of this world. We just talked about one small example of that attitude of heart. Changing the designation of time is an example of how the shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians of this world. But that's what Isaiah prophesied concerning him. He said in Isaiah 53 and verse 3 that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd, he is despised and rejected of men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Why? Because he's an abomination to us. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's the attitude of the people of this world toward the shepherd. And yet, in the face of that, God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son into a world of people who hated him. That's what we see in the second mention of the word shepherd in the Bible. From thence, Israel prophesied. From the mighty God of Jacob is the shepherd of Israel. God manifest in the flesh. And we see the shepherd that uh, that, um, Israel prophesied of in John chapter 10. If you'll turn over there quickly to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and look at verse 11. The Lord Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. This is why the arrival of the Lord Jesus is made known to these shepherds. Because the Lord is, by his spirit, is seeking to draw our attention to the one who was prophesied by Israel 1,700 years before he came. Israel was talking about this very one, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something else in this verse, this 11th verse. The good shepherd giveth his life For the sheep, the sheep, think about it. These shepherds to whom the angel appeared were not only shepherds, they were sheep. And they needed a savior. That was the message of Luke 2 and verse 11. For unto you, unto you shepherds, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a shepherd, the shepherd, which is Christ the Lord. Shepherds are men who guided and defended and provided for their flock. They ruled over their flock, if you will. They tended to be people who were self-sufficient, self-reliant, independent, They need a Savior. And the question is why? Why did these shepherds need a Savior? Because they were sheep. Because they were sheep. And Isaiah said that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. That's why the message of the angels, uh, angel to the shepherds, was what they need is a Savior. They were sheep who had gone astray. They were sheep who had turned to their own way. They were sheep who believed that their way was right. Because every way of a man is right in his own eyes. These shepherds were sheep who had turned to their own way. And the warning of the word of God is that there is a way 
which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's why these shepherds needed a Savior. It's why you and I need a Savior. We are sheep who've turned to our own way. We like to do our own will. We like to do that which is right in our own eyes. But the way that you and I have choose by nature is the way of death. These shepherds were sheep who needed a Savior. And that Savior is the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. There's a thought here that we don't want to miss. The mighty God, the Shepherd of Israel, that Israel prophesied of, the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was also a sheep. He's the shepherd and he's the sheep. He's the lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's pictured in the sheep. He's pictured in the lambs who provided the coats of skin for Adam and Eve. He's the lamb who was the firstling of the flock of Abel in Genesis chapter 4. The only offering that God respected. The only offering that God accepted. He's the lamb when Isaac asked his father on Mount Moriah, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said to him, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. He's pictured in the Passover lamb, the lamb without blemish and without spot in Exodus chapter 12, whose blood was to be put on the, the, the doors and the side post and the lintel over the door. And God said, When I see the blood of the lamb... I'll pass over you. And this lamb that's pictured all through the, 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 the Old Testament, this lamb, the word, was made flesh. And one day, one day, John the Baptist looked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The mighty God, the shepherd of Israel, that Jacob prophesied of, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, was also a sheep. Only God can do that. He's the shepherd. He's the sheep. He's the judge. He's just. And he's the justifier. Only God can do that. He's the Lamb of God. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of all of us sheep who've gone astray. The iniquity of all of us sheep who have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord made him to be sin for us. The good shepherd became a sheep and gave his life for the lost sheep. Like these shepherds whose birth the angels announced the birth of the Lord Jesus to. And God was pleased with the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. He was pleased with the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. 
There's an interesting verse in, in um, Hebrews 13 and verse 20. It says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Now think about something. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God, we're to live by every word of God. Think about it. That great shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd gave his life for the sheep. But it is that great shepherd of the sheep that God brought again from the dead. Why the change in wording? Philippians chapter 2. The Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, took upon him the form of a servant. The good shepherd... The Lamb of God became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Is he your shepherd this morning? Is he your shepherd? He's not the shepherd of shepherds. He's not the shepherd of of those who are independent, self-sufficient, who are living their own way and doing their own will and, and going in the way that they want to go, watching over their own lives. He's not the shepherd of those who are independent and have no need of him, rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. The sheep. Those who have humbled themselves and acknowledged that they've gone astray. Those who have seen that their own way is the way of death. And they've turned from their own way. And they've done exactly what the shepherds did. Remember back in Luke chapter 2? They came with haste. They came with haste. They heard the message from heaven. They heard the message of the angels. By the way, they heard the first Christmas carol in all of history. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. They heard the gospel. They heard the first Christmas carol. And there was a sense of urgency in their hearts. They came with haste. Haste. And they found just as the angels said. They found the Lord Jesus there. This morning, he can be your shepherd. If you're willing to have a sense of urgency about your condition, and come to him and trust him to be your savior. You can do that this morning. And the important thing is now, this morning, the things that we've talked about earlier Briefly, but still, the things that are happening all around us. And when we see these things happening, we need to look up and lift up our heads because there's another description of the shepherd. Peter says he's the chief shepherd. The king of kings and lord of lords. The chief shepherd is about to appear. Luke chapter 2 The message 
of the first coming of the Lord Jesus, the message of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, the message of the gospel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your amazing word. What a privilege it is every week, every time that we can gather to study it together. We thank you for the message of Christmas. We can never even begin to plumb the depths of it. But we thank you that we can understand the simplicity of it. That the Lord Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That he came to seek and to save that which was lost by giving his life on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for all of these things this morning. We pray that each person here knows you as their Savior. If there's one who doesn't, we pray that this would be the day when the Lord Jesus would be born in their hearts. If we know you today, we pray that we would be those who give out this message faithfully and unashamedly. pray that you would bless in the cantata tonight, Father, as the choir comes and as the actors come, we pray that you would bring that all together to present the glorious message of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.